Hi, good evening everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. So if you could please make your way into the chapel. We do have some seats right up front. We're not in high school anymore, so we're not scared to sit in the front of class. Um, good evening everyone. My name is Rosemary Eldridge. I'm the Director of Programs and Communications here at the Catholic Information Center. And on behalf of the CIC and our wonderful director, Father Charles Trilos, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who's joining us um, here tonight in person, for those of you watching online at home, for tonight's event with Sorab Amari, featuring his new book, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. Sorab is the op editor of the New York Post and contributing editor of the Catholic Herald. He served as a columnist and editor with the Wall Street Journal opinion pages in both New York and London, as well as a senior writer at Commentary Magazine. He has been published in the New York Times, the Times Literary Supplement, the Chronicle of Higher Education, the Weekly Standard, First Things, Descent and America, among many other publications. Sorab is the author of the new Philistines, How Identity Politics Disfigures the Arts. His new book, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith, which he is discussing tonight, reaccounts his unlikely passage from the strident Marxism and atheism of a youth misspent on both sides of the Atlantic to a moral and spiritual awakening prompted by the mass. Robert P. George says, memoirs written by people who are still in their 30s are almost never of interest to anyone. So Abermari's, however, is a grand exception. George Weigel calls the book relentlessly honest and deeply moving, while Archbishop Charles Chaput says Sorab Amari is emerging as one of the finest minds and writers of this generation. And with that, please join me in welcoming Sorab Amari. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, I want to start by thanking the Catholic Information Center Father uh, Mitch, who, who, who's not here tonight, who has done a lot to organize this as well, Rosemary and everyone else, um, uh, very much appreciate you having me. Um, I have to tell you something. I, you know, when, when you write a book like this, you um, get a lot of speaking gigs afterward, and um, uh, I have about you know, two dozen lined up. But this is the first one, um, which is good in some ways. You'll get fresh material the way comics try out at the, at the comedy cellar. Um, the bad thing is it won't be as polished as the people who hear it on the, let's say, the 12th, 13th, you know, 20th time. So bear with me in that sense. Um, uh, so before I, I begin, I have to address, you know, why uh, write a spiritual memoir now? It's a, it, obviously, it's a popular genre. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, certainly a, a tradition that reaches back hundreds of years, um, but why, why now? Uh, there's some things that are specific to why this book came about, which I should tell you about. Um, I began a course of instruction with a priest in London. I was working for the journal at the time, for the uh, European opinion pages of the journal, and uh, I was receiving instruction in London beginning in, let's say, May, late May 2016. Um, and as I began my course of catechesis, I had no intention of going public about it, if maybe ever, but certainly not till after I was, I was actually baptized and, and received into the church. But then in July 2016, something ghastly happened across um, the English Channel. As some of you will remember, um, 
a pair of jihadists inspired by Islamic State, so-called Islamic State, um, uh, attacked a church in Normandy, France, and um, and murdered a priest, Father Jacquemel, while he was celebrating the mass. And so I was, let's say, a two months in catechumen, a Catholic to be, and I just felt like I had to respond somehow. So like any millennial, I took to my uh, Twitter account, and I, I, I wrote, uh, you know, hashtag I am Jacamel after the um, uh, Je suis Charlie hashtags that emerged after the, the massacre at Charlie Hebdo. Um, and I just added, and oh, by the way, I should announce that I'm under instruction to, to be received into the Catholic Church. And I even named the church that I was under instruction at, which is freaked out the priest <laughs> for, uh, uh, for obvious reasons. And so, uh, but what really happened was lots of well-meaning Catholic and, and broadly, let's say, Christian media were taken by this story and, and started writing about it. Um, and they went to my Wikipedia page, which said that I was born in Iran. Um, and they surmised that okay, this guy was a believing Muslim, and in this one instantaneous act of, of martyrdom inspired him to convert to Roman Catholicism as though I were you know, praying to Allah five times a day and then suddenly said, you know, I, I accept Jesus Christ as my savior and the Catholic Church is his church. Um, well, of course, that wasn't true. My conversion was the culmination of a really a 20-year process of, of thinking and life experience and it took about a, a sort of a 60,000-word 60, 60, memoir to, to recount it all, um, which is why I wrote the book. To, in, initially, all I wanted to do was sort of set the record straight and suggest that, um, that I, was, I was not just instantaneously converted by the site, as moved as I was by Father Amel's. Another kind of uh, prefatory remark I should make is that, you know, although it's very much a a book of ideas. It's a it's a, it's a, in much an intellectual history or intellectual memoir, and a spiritual memoir. I hope as you read it, you don't get the sense that um, I'm recounting my own heroic efforts through reading and reasoning to reason my way to the Catholic faith. That that all of it is premised on God's grace, and that's that, that this is my response to that. Certainly there is reading involved. Certainly there is sort of intellectual development involved. But it's, it's not a, a story of, um, you know, heroic young writer, you know, just reads his way into the faith. And that's, that's the, not the impression I hope to give. So with those aside, so I will start at the beginning. And uh, I'll try my best to give you the highlights of the book, um, of this journey from someone who declared himself very out, outrightly and, and um, sort of radically to be an atheist to someone who now thinks that either Catholicism is true or, or nothing is, and thank God that it is true. Um, the journey begins in, in Tehran, Iran, where I was born exactly six years to the day the Ayatollah Khomeini returned from his Parisian exile to herald the new Islamic Republic. So I was a child of the Iranian Revolution. But I was actually the child of two revolutions. One was the revolution of 1979, which everyone is familiar with. But there's another revolution uh, uh, it, 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 as part of my 
my parental inheritance, and that's the revolution of 1968. Because my parents supported Ayatollah Khomeini's revolution to their eternal regret, not because they sought to bring in an Islamic regime, but because they had, they had read hot-headed French philosophers and concluded that the thing to do uh, to satisfy their search for meaning amid this Iran that under the Shah was rapidly modernizing um, was to embrace was to, 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 to embrace revolutionary ideas and level all hierarchies and construct an entirely new order. Um, so those are the two revolutions that gave birth to me. On the one hand, in the public outside world that I was born into, um, Iran had, thanks to Ayatollah Khomeini, re-Islamized itself and, and established a a theocracy, um, and on the other hand, in the inner world of our house, there was another revolution, which was the revolution of 1968, which sought to sort of uh, 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 debunk all sort of established values and 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 uh, be free spirited. Um, so I had this tremendous clash of the two worlds when I was growing up in Iran. On the one hand. At home, my parents would tell me, insofar as they had any sort of absolute moral injunctions, uh, my father was an architect, my mother was an abstract expressionist painter uh, (laughs) in Iran, in post-revolution Iran, and what they would tell me is, be yourself. That was really it. uh, They encouraged me to to call them by their first names because ma and pa or mom and dad were too redolent of formality and tradition and things that they had overthrown in their revolution of 1968. Um, meanwhile, in the outside world, you have the you have the Islamic Republic with its severe rules governing nearly every aspect of life. Whether that's um, you know you can't hold hands if you're man and man and wife in public, uh, you can't drink alcohol, um, and regulating nearly every aspect of life um, in a police state. So as a child there, I um, certainly initially believed in God, in a sort of non-denominational God to whom one turned to when you wanted that Lego set that your parents didn't buy you or when you um, wanted to escape the wages of homework. You would pray to him in some sense. So in that kind of non-denominational sense, there was a, there was a bearded man in the sky to whom you could turn. Um, uh, a little, getting a little older, you know, I went to, a high, to, to elementary school. I realized that, but there is another God, which is your demanded uh, and required to adhere to, which is the God of, God of Shiite Islam. Um, and even that contains some things that I found very moving as a child. As you know, the Shiite faith, or you may know, is very much a faith of martyrs. Of, of saintly figures, descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, who sh- whom Shiites believe were the true heirs and should have been uh, uh, the successors of the Prophet and whose right had been usurped by successive Sunni caliphs. This is the, the divide between the uh, Sunnis and, and Shiites. And there was one figure especially um, who, uh, named Imam Hussein who lays down his life in a place called Karbala in Iraq, because he, uh, the the Sunni caliph Yazid, had uh, established himself in, in the caliphate uh, in a in a sort of act of succession that the Shiites 
rejected as, as saw as, as illegitimate, and Hussein would not pay obeisance to Yazid, the caliph. So he and his companions uh, it, it took to Kufa in Iraq because there they had heard there is a uprising about to happen against Yazid. Of course, it turned out that um, by the time they got close to Kufa, the governor there had, had suppressed the rebellion so that Hussein and his 72 companions found themselves cut off by the, you know, by the waters of the Euphrates. They couldn't make it to Kufa. They couldn't retreat. And they were massacred by a, a force of some 30,000. Who knows what the exact numbers are? It's not like, anyway. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, they, were, they were massacred. And there was something incredibly moving about this idea that, that Hussein laid down his life in this act of sacrifice for for the truth or for what was just as he saw it and for his friends. Now keep that in your mind because it certainly got seared into my mind somehow and it would be reactivated later in the story as you'll see. But other than that, in, as I encountered God in the Islamic Republic, he was a God of total laws, regulating every sort of dimension of life on the one hand, but he required a police state to, to enforce his whims. Um, so you know, I would watch the double lives and the hypocrisy that that necessitated. So um, although many people think that you'll get uh, flogged if you're caught with alcohol in Iran, in fact, that's true. That's what's on the, on the books. But it doesn't necessarily mean that every person who gets caught with alcohol gets flogged. It so it happens that the morality police is very much pliable if you can bribe them. If you can give them $20, more often than not, they can leave you alone. And that happened to me a number of times. And one time we were in northern Iran, as many uh, people from the capital vacation in northern Iran. We were up there as well. And one of these sort of morality committees, is called the Comité, which means the committee, approached us in a sort of green, their notorious green Toyota 4x4s. And, you know, the, the, uh, the plainclothes policeman with two uh, uniformed officers got out, and they asked for the you know the hot water bottle that my parents and their friends had. And the guy took one sniff, and he knew that it was Iraq, as we call it, Iraq, which is alcohol. And he started railing against my parents and their friends, and they all apologized and so on and so forth. But it came down to it. He said, "Well, look, if you're having such fun, can't you share your fun with us?" And that, everyone knew what that meant. So the men all like, pulled their wallets and, and paid them off, and, and they met, went on their merry way. So that hypocrisy made me think, if this is God, I want nothing to do with him. So that very night, we went to the, to the villa, and I went upstairs to the room that I had, and I just thought, okay, if that's God, I want nothing to do with him. Let's test something. If I curse God, uh, will anything happen? Will I get zapped? And I did, and nothing, nothing really happened. So I, that almost instantaneously, I decided that I was an atheist. Now, I did get zapped. It, the, the 20 years that followed were one long zapping. <laughs> but, but it didn't come in a cartoonish uh, you know, uh, thunderbolt from the sky. Uh, at any rate, it didn't matter too much, because my parents, uh, certainly my mother and I, were going to immigrate to the U.S. We had an uncle who'd settled uh, in Utah, of all places, um, uh, and so he got us the family preference visa program, uh, a.k.a. chain migration. 
And um, so we got our green cards. It took seven years from the time we applied. I was seven years old. It was, I was nearly 14 when we actually received the green cards. And uh, so I thought, here we go. I'm headed for the land of secularity, the home of modernity. None of this God stuff anymore. Done with it. Um, because that's what the West was to me. I loved America because America was secular, um, as a lot of Iranians imagine it to be. So, you know, picture my surprise as we, we took a, uh, a KLM Royal Dutch Airlines flight uh, to Amsterdam, where I was wowed by the sort of what we saw in the video store, over the, in the layover. And it's, take another flight to Minneapolis, okay. Transfer again. I go to Salt Lake City. But hold on, we don't even stop there. We take an hour-and-a-half ride car, a car ride to a town called Eden, Utah, with a population of 600, all of them Mormons. Uh, <laughs> and so almost in- instantaneously, I, I detested everything <laughs> that I found. I hated their school dances. I hated the, 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 the uh, pep rallies. Why were we a grizzly? What does that mean? Uh, I was kind of precocious, but kind of awkward. So I had watched enough American movies to have the same fluent accent that you hear now when I was 13, 14 years old. But I would read things, and I didn't hear them pronounced correctly. So, and I had a propensity for using $10 words. So I had heard, I had read a, a word where you describe an emotion, you'd say... Um, I'm feeling melancholic. And the teachers would ask, how are you feeling? I'd say, I'm feeling kind of melancholic. <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, anyway, all of this was enough to make me think that, okay, I've come to a place where the promise was secularity. What I found is actually is a kind of communitarianism, not maximal individual autonomy, but uh, a very sort of conservative culture. And I started saying, you know, I've moved from one theocracy to another, which is really unfair because, you know, the Mormons say what you will about their theology or whatever, but they never enforce their rules, you know, at the pain of flogging or chopping hands and so forth, uh, judicial amputation. But it didn't matter for me. as I, I, I just knew that I didn't like the Mormons, and I sort of was, was bitter that um, I had landed there. Um, and I was just on my way to becoming, and here's where I hope the story is, although there's some things that are exotic about my background, in fact, is universal. Um, you'll, you'll recognize some element of me in, in, in our contemporary culture as well. I, I rebe- rebelled against all of that. I almost picked up my rebellion against God, against religious authority, against traditional morality, where I had left it off in Iran, I just picked it up over here. Uh, only here you could go to the bookstore, as I did between my junior year and senior year of high school, and you'd find a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra by a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, um, who, who looked very melancholic. <laughs> and and, and I, so I, I bought the book, um, and I, to say that I read it is an understatement. I drank it. I consumed it and over maybe the course of three days. And much of it went over my head because if you know the book, um, it's filled with biblical allusions. And all of those allusions went over my head. I didn't 
I didn't catch them. Um, the fact that his pro prophet lives a private life until he's 30 years old and then goes out and does his sort of public ministry, although he has then a 10-year interlude where he you know, communes with the moon and the stars and so forth. But at any rate, he, Zarathustra was a sort of neo-Jesus. Um, uh, but it was enough that he proclaimed that God is dead. Um, and that was electrifying. I had no sense of what that meant. He was describing a sort of, of the intellectual history of the West where somehow from, from the world of Athens, Jerusalem, and Rome, through the Enlightenment, we had gotten to the point of the materialist revolution of the 19th century with the discoveries of Darwin, with uh, 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 you know, the, the rise of, sort of Freudian uh, thought, and so on and so forth. We had gotten to the point where... Um, God seemed implausible and had been declared dead, or he declared him dead. But that didn't matter that I didn't understand all of that. What was electrifying was that he said that um, you, we, we've abolished God. And the consequence of that is that we have also have to abolish man. Man as a, as a created being that, is, that has a relationship with a creator and a set of absolute no moral norms that, that have been passed down to him. All of that means nothing anymore. You can create your own values. Uh, there's no absolute good and evil. What matters is who designates things as good or evil. If the, you're the higher character type, you can de designate different things as good or evil for you. So, that, so the same rules don't apply to everyone. Uh, and that was electrifying to me. And, and uh, I thought, OK, I'll, I'll become a Nietzschean. I'll join the party of Nietzsche, whatever that means. But. Um, the closest thing I could do was to join a, a, a philosophy program when I started undergrad. Um, then I, you know, in a very orderly way, over the next two, three years, went through the entire history of, let's say, Western continental philosophy. From Nietzsche, I jumped over to Marx. Now, you would think that's contradictory because Nietzsche is deeply anti-egalitarian. He's constantly railing against the superfluous many and the herd with their silly values. Um, and he has no, no, no uh, truck for any sort of egalitarian project, whereas Marxism is obviously seeks to level all uh, hierarchical differences and build a sort of classless society. But that, nevertheless, I thought it was a smooth transition. It made sense to me to go from declaring God to be dead to declaring a revolutionary party to be... Uh, the agent of creating an entirely different new set of set of values. Um, also, Marxism assuaged all my own sort of class anxieties. Right, I uh, uh, I had come from a sort of Iranian upper middle class and suddenly found myself living in a small town in Utah. Initially, when we my, my mother and I moved out of my uncle's, we moved into a trailer court, and that transition from being a doted upon son of the uh, sort of Iranian bourgeoisie to a trailer park kid was was traumatic, and Marxism had an answer for that. That that was a ripple in the dialectic. Um, so uh, I embraced my Marxism, and actually I joined a, a, a Trotskyite party um, in first in Utah, and then I transferred to the University of Washington to be at their with their headquarters was. I was I would hawk their newspaper, uh, all of it. Through it all, though, there was a religious dimension. As you know, Marxism, although it's sort of deeply secular, has a religious structure because it holds that history moves in a predetermined direction until sort of the dialectic turns and turns until there is a 
an apocalyptic event, which is the revolution, and then it, it, you essentially create the kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, and uh, that, was, uh, that was very moving to me. It, was, it, it had this idea, of, again, of self-sacrifice, that uh, you know, a, a violent self- act of self-sacrifice would bring us to the point which had been pre-designated by history itself until there is, that history would then wipe every tear, let's say. Um, and then, but a little later, I found the Marxists themselves to be insufferable uh, as people. Like the, <laughs> the fact that if you are no, which probably none of you are, but if you ha- none of you have been, but if you've been in these circles, you know they have this sort of all these never-ending uh, internal battles between one Marxist corpuscule of five people and the the ones over there, the those those. Traitors, the you know who betrayed Trotsky's memory by changing some doctrinal thing, and I just I thought, look, I I had found myself, I brought myself outside the ramparts of monotheism and God to find freedom, and yet here I was, kind of beholden to these uh, people who ran their meetings according to the Leninist principle of democratic centralism, which meant that you know basically there was no democracy. That the party told you what our view is on X Y Z recent event that happens uh, and that you had to accept it and if you didn't they would just talk at you until they wore you down and uh, you, you were like okay all right fine um, so that wasn't that that was really dissatisfying so my way out of Marxism initially in college was then I started reading the postmodernists and uh, you know Foucault and Judith Butler uh, and so I wrote an email to the the head of the sort of Marxist group that I was uh, been a member of, and I wrote that, you know, <clears throat> I'm leaving you guys because you haven't paid enough attention to race, gender, and sexuality. Um, so, I, so I, I I traded one one mess of pottage for another, and uh, so what what where my awakening came, what took me out of all of that was joining Teach for America. I was you know done with undergraduate, and I was casting about for what to do, and I. Not out of deep idealism, but it was like, okay, you know, something on the resume or whatever, I'll join. Which is odd enough, because a, a Marxist would t- to care about what's on your resume. <laughs> the class to society and class prestige, uh, both at once. So I, uh, so I joined, and first of all, being responsible for other people's kids has a way of kind of uh, removing the nonsense that clouds your head. And, and for the type of person who's wrapped up in his own head, suddenly... You're confronted with 20 children at 7 in the morning, and they, their basic safety depends upon you. That tends to make things real somehow. Um, there's more than that. I had, um, I had a roommate who was an Israeli-American, and um, he was a very good teacher. He was a Teach for America teacher as well. I was a lousy teacher. I was uh, basically just chasing hook, hookups and... and, and uh, just doing the basics to get through, but he, you know, would spend, you know, from six in the morning till till ten at night. He would be like grading papers and planning and mentoring and so on and so forth. Um, but after a while, I noticed that not only was he good as a, as a professional, but he was just a good man. He was reliable, and I began to compare myself. And I thought, okay, there 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 are universal things, let's say, about the way people tick, things that 
transcend divisions of race, class, blah, 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 all the sort of materialist post-19th century um, ideologies that, that, that have reigned and reign in the West. Um, and the first place where my sense that, that people are different this way and yet they're all seem to be operating according to the same rules failing in some respects and succeeding in others was internal. There was a voice inside me that said that there's, that suggested there was an objective morality and it always pointed out when I fell short of it. Before I even fell short of it, it would sort of raise a red flag. And that made me think that there's, what I'm talking about is the conscience and what made me think that there's a sort of objective morality. Um, and that was a, an important awakening for me. Subsequently, I... I read more. I, you know, read the history of the 20th century, uh, the proper histories, and was ashamed to have championed essentially totalitarian projects that have had left millions dead. Um, and I read a, one very important book, *Darkness at Noon* by Arthur Kessler, ex-Marxist, who subsequently wrote a novel, but it was only thinly novelized. It was really a, a true account of of the Moscow show trials, um, and. The, the, the central character is a Marxist operative, Aparachik, who's fallen uh, out of favor with the party, and so he's being purged, and he's been tortured and, and in prison, and he's on his way to being executed. And as he thinks back to a life really misspent, an entire life misspent, um, ha, you know, having destroyed others for the sake of the party, he recalls a, a pieta, a scene of the, uh, of the Blessed Virgin holding uh, the dying Jesus. And that triggers for him the thought that somehow man needs to be bound by an absolute other for there not to be, for, for, for these horrors of, of history not to take place. And that began to change my, my view where I began to see the Judeo-Christian ideals that undergird the West as... Not, not anything oppressive, but actually a, a bulwark against oppression because if there wasn't some absolute other that, that sees human beings as, as inherently dignified, that's how you get these p- political projects that are willing to destroy people because it, they mean nothing. You know, why, why is human... Why, 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 you know, constantly people talk about human rights, human dignity. Where is the source of that if, not, if he, the human being is not created in the image of, a, of an almighty? That didn't make me a believer, but it made me think that um, I no longer saw Christianity as something to, to sneer at, but to respect. So as a, I would say as a secular person, you know, I'm not fortunate enough to be a person of faith. Which there's an arrogance in that as well. I'm not fortunate enough to be. <laughs> but I respect people who are, um, uh, and I wish I could be one. Um, so... You know, then I, I, I went off and I became, um, I went to law school and subsequently joined the Wall Street Journal and gradually became a, a secular uh, conservative. But there was a sort of providential portion in this which I can't, this is what I mean, that I can't, shouldn't present this story as though it's all my doing. Um, I had a couple of, you know, incredible accidental encounters with the mass which, it will sound crazy to secular ears, but I th- I'm willing to say that I think they were providential, where on a couple of occasions, where in your early 20s, you 
you drink too much and sort of are ashamed the following day, and I have a curse, which unlike other people, I remember everything, which is worse. I, there are others who drink too much and then just have to barely recollect what happened through sort of a detective work. I remember everything, which makes me think, oh, that the oafishness, the vulgar jokes, everything. So on one such occasion, I was walking through, I was working in New York City at the time, and walking around Penn Station, and um, kind of, again, recalling the previous night with, with, with not a little bit of shame. And there just happens to be a, a monastery and church not far from, from Penn Station. And so I just, I walked in, uh, just as the Sunday evening mass was about to begin. Now, I had no idea, really, what the Catholic Church teaches about what happens at the mass. I had read little bits of the Bible, but I hadn't read the Bible as a whole at all. Um, I had seen the Godfather's baptism scene. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, that was about it. But what mattered was that at that moment, you know, when, when the prayers of consecration was, were said, and the little disc was held up, which I didn't know was bread. I just thought it was like whatever, a little circle. Um, I was just floored because I felt like I was in the presence of this very holy thing and that I was very abject and undeserving to be in the presence of this holy thing radiating from the altar, and yet it was also radiating from me. Um, so I was in tears by the end of the Mass, but I collected myself, and um, I... Uh, you know, I collected myself enough to then walk out to, to the vestibule, and the friar greeted me. I smiled and everything. Then I went up to a picture of Pope Benedict at the time uh, that was hanging by the, uh, in the vestibule. And again, his picture sent me into a rapture of tears. And the friar came up to me and said, you know, son, that's, that's not God. <laughs> and, and, and I was annoyed even in that I was in this emotional outburst I was annoyed enough to think like I know that Pope isn't God but um, uh, and then he, he kept at it he was like you know that's the Pope you see that's the Pope but he's not God um, uh, but I, I was too sort of overwhelmed to answer him but those two things were already the things that I now love about Catholicism were already there there was the the redemptive sacrifice at the, at the altar so the, the, the element of grace but also the order that the the image of the Pope represents, the sort of continuous absolute authority across two millennia. That's I didn't I couldn't put it in those two in those terms at the time, but the harmony between grace and order, I think, is a good definition of Catholicism, and that's what I found. Ooh, I'm I've gone over a little bit too much. But um, I will speed it up. So in the in the following years I started reading Pope Benedict's books, and I also at the same time I read the Torah, the first the five books of Moses a particularly beautiful translation by Robert Alter, um, who now has done the whole Hebrew Bible, but at the time, just the, the first the, the five books of Moses. And, um, and I just thought, okay, this is a really good account of what ails me and what ails the world. In other words, what you encounter in the fall is the best account of sort of the brokenness of the world. Um, and that there are certain sets of problems, let's say, of questions that are posed by the existence of the conscience, um, good and evil, the kind of questions that are posed by the fear of God and the fear of death, that no amount of technological advancement, no amount of scientific advancement, they are as fresh 
today as they were when the, when the people of Israel encountered the same questions and then received answers uh, from, from God. And that although one needn't take um, the Bible to be literally true, the, 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 the account of, of the creation and the fall, yet it's true. It's morally true, uh, and it, it, it's, uh, it's metaphysically true. And that therefore, the truth isn't only the things which can be grasped at by our um, ability to either understand facts or measure the world with our instruments, but that there is such a thing as truth, moral truth, metaphysical truth. Um, and then, you know, having wept at his photo, I picked up the book Jesus of Nazareth, which was the first book that Pope Benedict wrote after he was um, uh, elected pope. And he picked up the story of the Bible, of, of the Hebrew Bible, and took it further. And he made a very compelling case that the, that the all of the Bible told one story, which is the same God of, of, of the Old Testament, who, through the Old Testament, constantly draws nearer to his people, eventually takes this mind-boggling step of, of becoming one of his creatures. Uh, I just thought... I had this thought, and then subsequently I read it in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, that if you went about crea- uh, inventing a religion, you would not invent Christianity. Of, a, of the God who, is, who, who is, becomes a baby with all the helplessness that that, that, that implied, uh, the God who consents to be scourged by his creation, the God who consents to have a crown of thorns, put on his head, the God who consents to be spat on his, you know, uh, in his face and to ultimately be crucified. It was so radical that um, I, I couldn't believe that it could be man-made. And Benedict also, I mean, he humbles the intellectual's arrogance. If you think, like, I'm too smart to believe, um, when you're faced with Benedict's intelligence, you're sort of like, oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and his learnedness. Um, so I, I think we're getting... Uh, close to my time, but it, the story's almost over as well. It took another 10 years. In fact, a lot of the memo- memoir, people tell me it's frustrating because it's this constant where at the end of each chapter I sort of say, so I was almost ready to ascend Calvary, but not yet. Um, so it took eight years, which are recounted in the book, but um, I'll skip over very quickly. Um, having assented to the idea that, that the fall was the most accurate picture of what ailed the world, and that only God could then repair this by becoming man um, and becoming in this great reversal of making of himself the sacrifice. Um, unlike all other sort of religions, and including the pagan, where you do, where you seek expiation of sins by sacrificing something else, he then takes it on himself to be the, sacrif- the sacrificial lamb. Um, that is all true. Okay, I want it. I started going to evangelical churches. And the only reason was that un, you know, Catholics don't say, hey, do you want to go to Mass? But, but uh, uh, evangel- or evangelical Protestants are like, hey, you want to come to Sunday service? Um, so I, I was in London at the time, and I would, I would go to these evangelical services. Uh, and they were fine. Uh, and I described you know, what I enjoyed about them and what I took issue with in the book. Well, the bottom line is that one day, the evangelical church I attended was called Holy Trinity Brompton, which is the most important evangelical institution in Britain. 
it happens to be right next door to another church called the London Oratory, which is um, it's a Catholic church well known for really beautiful liturgy. And I went in, and all those kind of feelings of, of longing for sacrifice in, imprinted on my soul ever since I revered Imam Hussein, even as I rejected his religion. And then those subsequent experiences with the Mass at a, as a 20-something, all those came back. And then this time with all the confidence and totality and sort of uninterrupted authority that a, that a traditional Mass by the way, this is a Novus Ordo Mass, but it's just a beautifully uh, reverent one, can, can represent. So that by the time it was over, I was just like, this is it. I want this. I want this. So, you know, the next Monday on my way to work, I stopped at the Oratory House, which is the um, uh, rectory, basically. And I knocked on the door, and this wise and old priest opens the door and with a very sort of poshing and shacks. And he's like, yes, I may help you. And I said, uh, <laughs> I wish to become a Roman Catholic. And he didn't miss a beat. He just said, very well, I shall instruct you. <laughs> and, and, and so he had me come on, a, on the next Sunday, and he, uh, he sat me down. There was no sort of, there were no posters to make, no sort of icebreaker games. He just, sort of, he be, he, he just said, we begin with order in nature and natural theology. St. Thomas Aquinas, and he sort of talked for an hour. And it was great for me because I had, I, you know, as, as much as you might be well-read, you have gaps in your as we do, unfortunately, because we don't have uh, really good classical education, or m- most of us don't. So he sort of filled in various things, and, and that's the end of the story. And uh, <laughs> I'll stop there. I've gone way over. I, I even told Rosemary I wouldn't, but... We no, he didn't go over, only by like one minute. So we have really? tons of time for questions and answers. Thank you, Sorab, for Q&A. If you have a question, please just raise your hand, and I'll bring the mic to you. The mic is working, even if you don't hear it as loudly in here, and we are using it to record the audio for the podcast. So please hold the mic up to your mouth. Thank you. That was absolutely phenomenal. This is the first run. I'm going to have to circle back around for the 20th. Um, but as a, as a convert myself, and I know speaking to a lot of converts, there's this moment where you rationalize and you think through and – you kind of realize you've read all the books that you're going to read on it and heard all the arguments that you can, and there's this moment, at least I know it was for me, where it's like, I know what's going to happen, so let's just get on with it. Let's just, let's yeah. just make it happen. Was there that sort of moment for you, and if so, what, what was that kind of like in just that was it. accepting on faith? It was a visit to the oratory. I hope I'm not prying too much. If I am, you know, you can just go no, to the I'm next wait, question. Wait the question. But when I read your book, I couldn't help but be curious because you, for quite a while at the end of the book, your wife disappears. Yeah. You mentioned that you get married and then you say, you go to London, she say, oh, she comes a few months later. And, and then she disappears until the end. And uh, I was just curious what's happening with her um, and when you're suddenly deciding, oh, you're going to become Catholic. It's uh, she, she's uh, my wife's Chinese American, so she comes from uh, nearly as irreligious a background as I did, uh, and um, you know she comes to mass with me. Um, she's consented to have our our children raised in the faith, and uh, she reads about the faith a lot. I mean, I, I buy her books, and it comes and goes. Her interest. Um, last I heard, she was she said that it would be sooner than a deathbed conversion. So we'll see. <laughs> Hi, that was fascinating. Um, I can't help but wonder when you go through all the different sort of phases of your intellectual development 
if you're not slowly heading back to Shiism, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, it's just fascinating because, you know, you start with the Torah, you're going into the New Testament. Is there a part of you that has ever had any interest in, you know, maybe that next revelation? And, and given all the similarities you point out between the sacrificial and ritualistic elements of Shiism um, compared to Catholicism, I'm just wondering if you feel like you have reached home or if you're still open to further journey. I've reached home. I, I really don't want to be standing in the Muslim version of the CIC in 10 years and being like, now the next... <laughs> um, uh, 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 so no. Uh, but I would say is that um, some of my... You know, when I was, I was a secular journalist writing about Iran, uh, sort of like... And about the Muslim world generally, I had the secular world's hostility to all faith not least the one that I associated with the Ayatollahs and so forth. Um, I'd say that, that now that the, the deeper I go into Catholicism and I read about um, how, let's say, St. Thomas, um, which I'm, I'm not an expert at all, but interfaced, let's say, with, in, interfaced, not interfaced, but interfaced with, with um, kind of the scholastic tradition, and, and it was in dialogue with Islam, that... That's interesting to me, uh, and so I, I happened to follow the the Pope as on a press junket when he visited Abu Dhabi, and I thought um, that um, that both the Pope and the um, the Sheikh of Al Azhar obviously have profound theological disagreements, but that the Sheikh of Al Azhar said, "Look." Uh, we're suffering the consequences of, of a rebellion against God on a sort of uh, a, a liberalism, a, a revolutionary liberalism that, um, that it, 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 he didn't put it this way, but it's almost like a, a, a one of the world's great religions that wants to compete with, with the God of, of the three monotheistic faiths. Um, in a way that I wouldn't be when I was a secular, I'm, I'm like, yeah, we, we, don't, we, can't, we can't agree on theology, but um, there's a sort of a shared critique, let's say, of liberalism with Islam. Liberalism, I don't mean liberalism as in the center-left. I mean as the sort of uh, philo- the, the philosophy of the best for the past 300 years or so, yeah. Um, you mentioned the beginning of your talk about how spiritual autobiographies have been going on for centuries. And I think the most famous one would be St. Augustine's, of course, Confessions. Yeah. And right at the moment, I'm also reading um, Thomas Merton's uh, Seven Story Mountain. So I was just wondering, did you read those other spiritual autobiographies? And if so, did they impact you at all when you were writing your own? And if you didn't read them, just the idea is that other people, there's this lineage of spiritual autobiographies. How did that impact things? Uh, I read the Confessions, um, and I I mentioned the book because I, I so I identified with the Bishop of Hippo that when I was asked, to take a baptism and confirmation name, I picked St. Augustine um, as a patron. Um, the other I didn't read because I was worried that reading him would somehow influence my voice in writing my own, Merton's, so I didn't read it. No. Maybe I will someday, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so you touched a little bit on uh, your study of Nietzsche and Marx and how um, societies kind of tend toward this totalitarian ideology when they... Um, 
leave religion because of this need for kind of something more. And I was wondering if you could uh, touch a little bit on um, kind of this current trend in American society that we can, you know, overcome our basic biology and, you know, all of the, you know, transgender ideology and then the, you yeah. know, let's try to create human beings in a test tube mm -hmm. away from us. And if you think that that comes out of Nietzsche's idea that we can overcome ourselves and create this overman? It comes partly out of Nietzsche's ideas. We live with Nietzsche's ideas quite a lot. Every time you hear sort of like self-empowerment, it's sort of pop Nietzsche. It's through all over our pop culture in a way um, and, and our kind of pop philosophy. Um, but most of the time, people don't kind of realize how pervasive it is. Um, that's part of it. The, the other is, um, I would say, the reigning scientism, which is a, a, an adjunct and subsidiary of kind of a technocratic liberal worldview that um, wants to to overcome life as we receive it from from nature. All of our limitations, you know, all the things that that make life miserable, that it imagines it can it can overcome. Um, even in the trans movement, I see a desire to really overcome death because if you can if you can uh, uh, change something as fundamental as your sex, uh, how far away is it from being able to overcome death too? And I have one gut reaction to that is that I just see that there's nothing but, at least in the West, nothing but Catholicism that stands the bulwark against this stuff. Um, and another is just to explore it and see how um, uh, uh, all such projects have failed. It's a sort of... Uh, and, and so e even this will kind of uh, reach its limits uh, because you can't change things. Like it, nature will sort of reject these efforts. Um, so, yeah. Good question. Hi. Um, I want to thank you so much for this uh, tonight. I have a question about um, your childhood peers in Iran who maybe saw or struggled with the world that they lived in the same as you did, mm -hmm. but did not have the opportunity to leave, mm -hmm. where are they now in terms, like, as a general um, explanation, how are they That's working that out? A shocking number have left. They're not all in the U.S., but across the diaspora, let's say, Canada, Germany, um, and um, I don't know about their spiritual lives or whatever. What I will say is that there are interesting thing, things happening um, under the radar in the Islamic Republic. No society is is ever stable. Things constantly change, and um, over there, um, you know, the the fact that you have a quite repressive dictatorship doesn't mean that the longing for for meaning, for ultimate meaning, goes away. And so, certainly, you have the. Um, waves of conversion. Often it's the evangelical Christianity. The numbers I've heard from 300,000 to 500,000, maybe more. Um, and who knows how that'll, that'll impact society. I mean, um, including ones, by the way, where they, they convert for immigration purposes. But, because then they can claim to be persecuted. But I never, I'm too bothered by that because I think it, if you pretend for long enough, then it'll, the gospel will sort of, the seed will grow anyway. Yeah, so. Um, but also, I mean, there's plenty of like, as far as I can tell, because I'm, I'm, I can't go back, but I, I certainly try to 
peek in. Sometimes I go to Turkey and interview Iranians who are recently out. And there's, on the one hand, the evangelicals. There's also unbelievable hedonism. Because I think a lot of people think the, they want to be against whatever it is that they're being fed by the regime. So they, they'll go the other way. And the described sort of parties were, that are so <laughs> obscene that would make like you know, uh, any of us or anyone in, in, in the West even blush. Um, and then there is also, you know, lots of sort of spiritualism, mysticism. You know, the, the hunger for ultimate meanings doesn't, doesn't go away. So um, it's really fascinating. I have time for one, maybe two more questions. Uh, one of the things that Jesus talked about is sometimes following him and, and pursuing his namesake can um, result in leaving one's one's family, yet also being able to um, be welcomed into another family. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to either side of, of that and how that um, journey has been of either um, making this different choice in your family or finding family that wasn't expected. My family is mostly indifferent. Let's put it that way. I mean, no, but, but um, certainly at work, I mean, I was at the journal at the time and a lot of a lot of Catholic colleagues, and so it was super welcoming. People were like, hey, you should try this prayer. You should read this book. Um, and now at the New York Post, same thing, lots of, lots of Catholic colleagues. So, um, so no, I mean, I, I haven't been yet made to make that particular, or, or, or let's say carry that particular cross, no. Uh, All right, we have one more question. Hi, thanks so much for speaking with us. Uh, my question for you is, uh, what role do you think the Catholic Church has in evangelizing more in the Middle East, similar to how our Protestant brothers and sisters do? Yeah. Uh, the, the Catholic Church, you know, in Iran does not, does not evangelize. And the reason for that is that it serves an indigenous Christian community there, uh, Assyrians, you know, uh, Armenian Catholics, and it, it, it wants to be able to provide sac- the sacramental life for them. And if it were to, there's great risk. I mean, I don't know. Are there people who then sneak into Catholic churches? And who knows? I mean, I can't speak to that. Um, but, um, you know, I saw, you know, again, like I said, I, I followed the Pope to, to Abu Dhabi where he celebrated Mass for 120,000 people. And I thought, you know, this is being played live across the Middle East uh, and, and, um, People in Saudi Arabia may be watching it live. People in Iran may be catching it on satellite. And it was, I thought it was a, the greatest act of evangelization in, you know, to, to go to the, to the Arabian Peninsula, the birthplace of Islam, and, 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 uh, and have, the, have the real presence there is quite something. So uh, it, my point being, I don't want to kind of do a critique of, like, why isn't the church? Because uh, especially with Pope Francis... I think he, in terms of evangelization, I think he has this sort of long-term vision in places like um, China with Arabia where I think that, you know, we, like Catholics and others, should just have a sort of spirit of docility before it and be like, what if he has a sort of Matteo Ricci-esque vision instead of saying, like, go to the heartland of Islam and critique the Quran. Like, come on, you know. Uh, uh, So I hope that's helpful. (laughs) 